So good evening, Sangha. Are you hearing me okay? Fantastic. So can't hear, so how do I take care of that? A little louder? Is it more in the the churning here? How is this? A little better? Okay, this is just real. Not only is it messing up my outfit, it's not fitting. (laughs) Not fitting well. (laughs) How do I look? No. (laughs) Well, good evening. I'm excited to um, have a little time with you. And um, in this last evening we have together, when we've already started transitioning, um, talking, uh, easing back into um, a life that's still doing what it does. It has not been on retreat, (laughs) you know. So we're like here and then there's stepping into that and so it's the perfect evening to talk about equanimity uh, to talk about uh, the quality of staying in our seat uh, when there's so many moving parts in our lives and what that's like on the inside to um, to hold and to hold as a practice uh, in this world at this time especially at this time Uh, especially with the tenderness we've been developing this week and the slowing down and uh, the ways we've kind of let go of some of the hard callousness that we feel like we need or we kind of discover that we need or or that we're holding as we walk through the world. Some of that has been what you've been waking up to in the course of these days, just kind of noticing just how much you hold and how heavy the weight is for us, especially as a body of color. You know, it's this tenderizing that this practice makes available to us, but it requires wisdom in order for us to, to, to stain ourselves in a, in a way of, uh, where we feel stable and confident uh, and well. So I want to talk about equanimity from that sense this evening of, of uh, looking at how we uh, maintain our seat in, this, in the ways that we walk in the world and in our practice. I think one of the tastes of equanimity that I got was back in the 80s. I had uh, moved from uh, Los Angeles area from from uh, uh, Pasadena, Altadena, where I raised my son. And um, I was in graduate school. I had come out as a lesbian, fell in love with this woman there, and all of a sudden life was just so immediately and instantly different. Um, I'm relocated from the Southern California to Northern California, and Santa Cruz, the land of spiritual materialism. (laughs) I loved everything about it. And um, I remember uh, taking this uh, dream workshop. It was a series over about eight weeks, and we recorded our dreams and talked about them. And uh, you know, I've noticed that even this week, many of us kind of wake up through our dreams. A lot of dreams, a lot of visitation, a lot of um, clarity coming through in our dreams. So I had this dream, and, um, you know, Martin Luther King's not the only one. Uh, I, I had a dream. My name is King, too, by the way, but I'm not going to talk about that. I had this dream of this big, round body sitting on this flower, in the middle of a very still lake. And um, it had my face on it. And it was sitting very serene. And uh, what was so interesting is that there were these uh, 
there was a storm, a horrendous storm of lightning and thunder and chiseled ice and just all this stuff attacking this body. And uh, the chiseled ice had pieces of body parts and people that I'd been in conflict over the years, just really attacking this body, attacking this body, and it just, you know. And what was so palpable for me was a sense of the stillness of the body just sitting there, um, sitting like this Buddha. In fact, it would take many years for me to realize the meaning of that dream, which was my own Buddha nature sitting on the flower of awakening, um, being in a war with Mara, the Lord of, Lord of the hindrances or the attackers. What was so palpable was that I could sit in my seat. I wasn't disturbed in the dream. I wasn't at war with what was coming at me. And there was this inner stillness that I can still taste right in this moment as I talk about it that stayed with me way before I was practicing in this practice, way before I knew what it was, what I recognized was this uh, inner quality that we all have, I believe, that, that gets revealed to us when we get all the clutter <laughs> a little parked and out of the way. We open to a realization that there's a stillness there waiting for us to rest in it. That was my story about it at the time. And it was just riveting. It was just a beautiful, deep knowing. I think I also got in touch with the fact that um, I can't do what I'm here to do if I'm in a perpetual state of overwhelm and hatred. I just can't see clearly and I can't do what I need to do if I'm constantly at war with what comes my way. Because up until the point of that dream, I had lived a pretty hellish life. I was around 33 at the time. I had, uh, I come from a, I was raised in South Central Los Angeles. And in my family, which was a lot of things, a lot of amazing things, one of the things, one of the norms in my family was that it was illegal to be tender. You just couldn't be walking around with your heart all open and, you know. So I was in trouble a lot because I was, I was the crybaby. I was the sensitive one. And I didn't know what to do with my heart for a, long, for, for, for a long time. It wasn't safe to be vulnerable when I was growing up. And there was a lot of violence, physical violence, and, and, and mental violence in the family I grew up in. It was hard. It was an interesting thing to see how my mother navigated raising eight kids and how control became uh, internalized and harsh treatment of our bodies inside the system, of our families, and how a sense of what is love and how, how is it to be in a relationship gets wrapped all around that, becomes a way of seeing and being in the world. So I couldn't wait to get out. I got out because I got pregnant at 15. And, um, you know, I didn't realize at the time that that was kind of an escape route, but it was. So at 15, I'm pregnant, and I graduate with my class with a baby on my hip, still fiercely determined, and knowing at some level that there had to be some other way to be in the world with all the hardship in every direction that I saw. At 17, my father was murdered by his girlfriend in a jealous rage. And I started wondering, what, what, what is the whole point of these, this body anyway, if so much can happen to it? You know, I don't remember feeling really emotionally uh, distraught at that time. I think something really shut down in me when my father was killed. And this sense of trusting and vulnerability, again, it kind of reinforced that having feelings was illegal, you know was dangerous to grieve his loss. 
And so this is all happening in my teens. And in my 20s, I had three major surgeries that really woke my body up. One was open heart surgery. And I said, wow, my heart is really being messed with <laughs> in my life. You know, tender-hearted, broken-hearted, open-hearted. Little did I know it was a surgical procedure that began a, that began a spiritual journey. It was my first silent retreat, recovery from that surgery. It was in my 20s. And I came out in my 30s, you know, a lot of moving parts in my life. No sense of what stillness and safety was just yet. And then I have this dream. I think falling in love with this woman helped me know that love was possible in a deeper way. But then I had this dream of feeling this potent homeopathic hit of equanimity, this stillness in the dream, even when being attacked, that you could sit in your seat. That turned my life around. So one question I can ask you is, when have you experienced freedom right in the midst of suffering? And what wisdom allows this to happen? Again, sometimes the questions are not to be answered. They're just to be sat with. I think all of us have had some taste of freedom in these ways. I think is what kind of has us thirsty for coming on retreats or leaning into something um, that we don't quite understand or trust, but it, there's something about it, you know, that feels right, that resonates where we, we, we can see ourselves. Sometimes it's a dream. Sometimes it's a smile a recollection of something that actually happened, uh, an act of selfless kindness. Sometimes it's a wink, a flirtation, some kind of way that your attention is lit up and you're invited to, to turn in and drop down and open. I think this imagery of the Buddha sitting, I think, Some of my Dharma siblings here have talked about it this way, the sense of touching the earth, this body upright, dignified, um, uh, stable. You know, I I found myself attracted to the imagery way before I understood it. I recognized something I was kind of looking for. And I didn't realize that it wasn't about a searching for it, it was about an opening to it. That's what we're doing here. We're opening to our true nature. We're not trying to be better people, or I hope that's not your agenda. I want to be a better piece of privilege. I want to get rid of that, you know, as opposed to opening to the nature of who you are. That's the quality of equanimity. That's the, the essence of this sense of dignity and uprightness. It reminds me of my mother when she was aging, you know, one of the hardest things about it was she didn't want to be curled over. She grew up with her body straight up, fighting. So this idea of curving the spine, she just resisted it. I'm not walking with a walker. It's like, yeah. But it was more than just that. It was just this sense of, you know, I need to stand in this life. I need to stand upright. So equanimity is broadly referenced in the Buddhist teachings. And the Pali word for equanimity is upeka. And what it means is to stand in the middle of all things. It's about an evenness of mind. It's an inner wisdom and strength that supports the experience of balance and well-being. And in in India, a a common way that equanimity is referenced is said to, to see with patience, 
is the quality of it, to see with patience. And the Buddha describes it as a mind filled um, uh, with equanimity as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, and without ill will. And what that reminds me of is a civil rights song, a spiritual song that I grew up with, my family and all the civil rights activism was singing. You know, you know this song. You can sing it with me. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved just like a tree. Planted by the water, I shall not be moved. That's equanimity. I'm going to plant myself here and resist with all my heart what's happening. Firm love, you know, but unmovable. So equanimity um, is the ease that comes from a sense of wisdom. And it's an understanding through our direct experience that there's two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering. And there's suffering that leads to the end of suffering. And part of what we've been doing this week is really seeing those gradations, those nuanced ways that we're contributing to our own suffering through our relationship with our mind. And it's so important to see, and it can be so unpleasant to see, but so necessary to see. We're seeing with perspective. So this term, equanimity, that's used, is kind of referred to as a crown jewel of practice. It's at the end of many lists in the Buddha's teachings. So it's part of wise mindfulness. Mindfulness meditation speaks of four foundations of mindfulness, four ways we could establish mindfulness in our heart and mind. And equanimity is associated with the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And it's part of a system of meaning that's spoken to as the seven awakening factors, seven factors of awakening. It's the seventh of the seven factors. And these include like mindfulness and investigation, energy, joy and rapture and also tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. All of these work together. These are all qualities that reveal themselves when the hindrances of the mind are turned down. When we're fixated on hindrances, it's hard to see the factors of awakening because our view is so narrow. But as those, that tightness softens, we start to open to what else is there? If we're zoomed in too tight, we'll miss it. We zoom out, we start to see, again, the nuances. We bring a bit more balance into our perspective of what's happening in our heart and mind. And equanimity is also a part of wise effort. These are all parts of the Eightfold Path. Wise effort Uh, as it relates to equanimity, is that we're holding joys and sorrows in balance. Right? It's, it's, It's how we're relating to the, we're staying in our seat around the eight worldly winds. The eight worldly winds in the Buddhist teachings are these kind of dynamics and tensions around pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, and fame and shame. The winds of them that come into our mind with regularity is speed, sometime occupy for a length of time. They're all impermanent, but we get fixated on it. 
on one versus the other. We kind of attach ourselves to it. And then a story gets wrapped around it. And then that becomes a view. And we're out of balance when that happens. Equanimity is being able to see all of the winds of these changes without attaching itself to anyone. And then if we do get attached to it, we can let go a little quicker through practice. Let go a little quicker. Let go a little quicker. So it's a balance. With equanimity, we're balancing the extremes of deprivation and indulgence. This is what the Buddhas came to understand as he was becoming enlightened. The, 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 the extreme of clinging and indifference. So with equanimity, we're knowing the energetic mind and we're learning to rest in it. We're learning to rest in the energetic mind, the speed and the stillness. It's when we can say to ourselves in the practice, oh, oh, this moment is like this, and it doesn't have to be different right now. This moment is like this. Uh Right now, this moment is like this. I'm going to be with that. It's like what President Nelson Mandela said when he says, when we can sit in the face of insanity or dislike and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. He was free way before he came out of prison. So this is a sense of, this is the quality of this potency of this practice of equanimity, of really steadying yourself so you can see with respect your conditioning and make some new deals with it, learn from it, soften around it. So it's a stage of non-reactivity, of being undisturbed by the ever-changing nature of the mind and our circumstances. This is how Toni Morrison says it. She says, at some point in life, the world's beauty becomes enough. You don't need to photograph, paint, or even remember it. It's enough. No record of it needs to be kept, and you don't need someone to share it with or to tell it to. When that happens, that letting go, you let go because you can. This is Toni Morrison and Tar Baby. You let go because you can. That's the quality of equanimity, where it's not grasping. It's not rushing out to get something. It's not clinging to something. So it's like an attunement, like a violin. You don't get the right sound if the strings are too loose or too tight. So the practice is an attempt to create a sense of attunement. It's a felt sense. It's not something you can think about. It's something you know in your seat. The Buddha was trying to describe to his son, Raula, the qualities of equanimity. And this is what he said, basically. I'm paraphrasing. He says, Raul is like a mountain, undisturbed by the seasons. It's like an ocean that can hold unimaginable things, even nations, without being disturbed. It's like a strong fire. It can engulf anything that's thrown into it. It's like space. All things can be seen within it without resistance. Anything that moves through it is not disturbing it. He's describing to us, he's trying to get his son to get his arms around the nature of equanimity. It's elemental nature. 
So when we're moving in the world, sometimes we can, you know, apply this by asking ourselves in this moment, what do I need? Do I need to be like a tree, like a mountain, solid right now? Do I need to be a fierce fire where I, where I just have to give you a bit of fierce truth? <laughs> you know? Or do I need to open up and... Um, and have an ocean of compassion in this situation. Just kind of lighten up a little bit. Do I need to open to a sense of more spaciousness, put a little space around my worries? Can I see the space in between everything else that's arising? Can I see that too? Maybe, maybe, maybe I need some of that right now. I can call on that. So we can see the application of this in terms of these elemental qualities and cultivating or calling up, if you will, the imagery or the, the, um, the seasonal uh, you know, nature of this. And equanimity is also... Um, a big part of wise concentration, which is the eighth of the eightfold path in the Buddhist teachings, is associated with the fourth jhana, these stilling qualities um, that we experience when we're in longer concentrated practice. We get a taste of it. We've gotten a taste of it this week when we've been invited again and again to come back to the breath and the body concentration practice usually have a, a, has a place of focus for our attention that we return to again and again and we start to feel a certain rhythm and stability inside the body that we can trust and know and rest in. It's a training of returning again and again to a deep knowing of what stillness is. And those are so the first two factors uh, of aiming our attention and sustaining it. And in that sense of sustainment, we can start to feel a sense of, of joy. And in the sustaining of just hanging with the joy, we can begin to see a sense of bliss. You know, there's dukkha, which is suffering, but then we can also step into sukha, which is bliss unimaginable ways where we are, we delight in um, the deep knowing of these teachings from the inside. And then our, our focus is pointed and we really get a felt sense of occupying this body, heart, and mind. So working with the breath and the body supports the cultivation of of uh, equanimity. And equanimity is also reflected in wise mindfulness in the teachings. And the other thing that I've found, uh, that I've found very helpful in working with this practice, it's been my practice primarily for a few years now, equanimity, is there's this little teaching that I see repeated um, that speaks to this tripod of gratification, danger, and release. we can begin to notice when we find ourselves off-centered or knotted and entangled in something, we can begin to investigate what is the gratification that I'm uh, receiving from this fixation? What is the danger I'm experiencing as a result of this fixation? And what is the release that I could offer that would create more balance. So that's a really useful little tool when you find yourself snagged, when you find yourself leaning forward or, 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 or pushed back and, and you're looking for that sense of center and that knottedness is there where you feel really entrapped by a belief or a view or a judgment, especially if it's a frequent flyer that I talked about earlier, you know. It's a recurring pattern, oftentimes of righteousness. 
we can ask ourselves, what is the gratification I'm getting from this? Maybe it's about being right. Sometimes we can be dead right. You know, you know what is the danger? Death. You know. <laughs> Killing yourself. And what is the release? What's release? You know, it's, it's sometimes that release is around a, renunci- a renouncing of some some way that you some habit that's not working for you it requires a bit of honesty to really step into that inquiry but you can work, use that tripod to really look at how you can bring yourself back into balance another way we can cultivate equanimity is in developing a relationship with calm Part of the seven factors again, sense of calm and tra- tranquility. We can notice in our practice if the effort we're making uh, is agitating the heart and mind or, or um, supporting it in being more at ease. What are we giving birth to? What are we, what are we activating through our own thoughts? What are we feeding? You know, we can, we can just have the intention in our practice of um, settling in a bit and not chasing after anything. A sense of urgency, this burning that happens often, that takes us up and out. We can have a reflection around developing calm uh, where, where we might ask ourselves some questions like, what are the times of the day when you're most likely to be calm? And how much importance do you give to calmness? Sometimes we think it's a waste of time or we're, you know, like uh, we're bored. And we kind of miss out. What supports you to be calm? And what are the most common conditions that cause you to lose your calmness? Sometimes we're afraid of it. Sometimes we can't tolerate those moments of freedom that we we experience in the body. We have to quickly do something else. Our nervous system, our energetic, won't allow us to just hang out there. There's too many things to do in the world. We've got to, you know... And then we're tight in our bodies again and again. And during meditation, what we could do to cultivate a relationship with calm is we can give special attention to being calm during meditation. That was the invitation and being with the stillness in the body. Becoming acquainted with the stillness in the body, resting in the stillness. Sometimes for us we need to get a little physical before we sit so that we can know the contrast between tightness and a, and a vigorous workout and then that settling that happens when you get still. So you can know it more immediately. That's okay too. Really feeling the shift or feeling the experience of coming to calm, of calming. And we could ask, how does calm affect my mindfulness and how does mindfulness affect my experience of calm? Does awareness have anything to do with it? And where we place our awareness. Another way to look at cultivating equanimity is to give some attention to, to the way you view the world. What is the view you walk around in the world with? The assumptions you make, the beliefs you have. And part of wise view is understanding that there's a nature to all of our existence. It's referred to as the three characteristics of existence. 
that impermanence is a real thing, suffering is a real thing, and the idea of focusing strongly on I, me, and mine contributes to a lot of suffering. The shorthand that I have for this is nothing in life is personal, permanent, or perfect. It just helps me remember this. You know, life is not uh, permanent, but, but not, life is not personal. But sometimes we walk through life. This is the ultimate reality. Life is not personal. The things that happen to us are, are not always personal. There's usually some other place or body of people in the world that are experiencing very similar things. So in the largest sense of the world, of the word, it's not personal. We're not a solid self. I'm so glad when I look back on my life, I'm not who I was even yesterday. <laughs> that change is, is happening. Life is impermanent. Change is all there is. Change is all there is. It's happening all the time. It doesn't feel that way when we lock down on a belief. It feels shrink-wrapped, zip-locked, airtight, impenetrable. But that's not true. These laws are to be understood like, like, like gravity. You know, when you understand gravity, you don't drop a glass of water in space and expect it not to, to, to crash. You know, you, you, you know that something needs to catch it. The same is true with these, with these principles here. It's not personal, it's not permanent, it's not perfect. His life is not perfect. It's far from perfect. People we love die, the body changes and aches, you know. And the puppy we love so much poops. So it's messy, messy at best. And then another way that we can develop equanimity or cultivate it is through the Brahma Viharas, which is what we've been looking at this week. You know, the Brahma Viharas are concentration practices. They give us a focus. They give us an aim, something to bring our attention back to again and again, these phrases. You know, it's a base of, a su- of support. It establishes stability for our investigation to be more clear. It's kind of like when we're, when we're practicing the Brahma Viharas, we're, we're cultivating kind of an inner atmosphere that flavors everything else. It's like the music in the elevator. You know, whatever comes in is going to get this music. Usually we don't like the music, but we can change the music in our minds. I often think of it as a technology, a software that we pop into the hardware of our conditioning. You know, these practices that we repeat again and again, there's a learning curve to this software technology and its practice. So it's a base of protection, uh, these practices. And, and there are some phrases that are used in, um, in the Brahma Vihara practice of equanimity that's useful for us to understand. And, and some of them that I've found helpful are, whether I understand it or not, things are unfold, unfolding to a lawful nature. Rather, whether I understand it or not. <clears throat> All beings meet their joys and sorrows according to a lawful nature. And no matter how I might wish things to be otherwise, things are, are as they are right now. They're as they are right now. It doesn't mean we, we suspend our activism. It means we accept what's right here, right now, as being right here, right now. And in the relational field, when I bring these, this inquiry into the relational field, um, I, it, it, this reminds me of, I found this source somewhere and I couldn't remember where. 
uh, but it was so touching for me in the relational field around equanimity, and it goes like this. It is not our work to force someone's growth to our liking. It is a work of love to to admire the beauty before you, to give people a sense of safety to unfold, to keep each other company when drowning in anguish until the wave can balance out and our feelings can once again live in us. kind of staying in your seat with equanimity. It's a sense of non-interference in the nature of things, in the relational field. It's a beautiful way to stay in your seat. And also in the relational field, you know, there's, there's social equanimity. Our practice doesn't just belong to us sitting on the cushion. It has to do with a sense of social responsibility. Our collective. Charles Johnson, one of uh, an African-American Buddhist scholar and philosopher and author of Taming the Ox, he says, one way to understand right conduct is to see it as a calling to us as citizens to translate the Dharma into specific actions for social responsibility. So sometimes I play with the imagery of, of uh, stillness and, and, and being, uh, walking in the world that's crazy out there, that's waiting for us, you know. Uh, how, do I wa- how do I bring a sense of balance with that, to that? And the teachings, the Buddhist teachings, uh, one way that we walk in the world is through the practice of the paramis. There's ten paramis that support us in a sense of uh, integrated, embodied integrity around our relationship in the world. And they dance together and support each other. The first one is generosity. It's the dana, it's our way of giving. And it's, it's the giving of our spiritual wealth in support of something larger than ourselves. Ethical integrity, a sense of discipline. Renunciation, the sense of letting go because you understand you can't hold on. Wisdom, seeing things as they are, understanding the three characteristics. It's not personal, permanent, or perfect. Energy, courage, how we use our emotional labor, and whether we've got that in balance. Patience, patience, not to be confused with tolerance, right? A patience that understands impermanence, that you can be patient because it's always changing. Truthfulness. Resolve, a sense of resolve is determination without clinging. Kindness as a weapon of mass healing. And equanimity, this sense of stability of mind and heart. All of these ten paramis, they kind of work together, they dance together, they, they lift up a certain, their, their practices that support us in walking in the world and um, with dignity and grace. So Thomas Merton, uh, a white Catholic writer and mystic, offers us a real important um, writing as it relates to being in the world and social equanimity, speaks to balance, and he says, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are the most common form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, 
to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. Speaking to a sense of balance, of equanimity. And as a body of color, because of our sensitivity, because of our nervous system, because of our compassion. You know, we're hardwired to be out of balance with the world. And the Buddha talks about two wings in order to be free. You have the wing of compassion, which is to care deeply for all things, and the wing of wisdom, this understanding of the nature of things. And if we're overweighted, out of balance, where we care so much without having an understanding of a wise way of holding the complexity of life, the nature of of existence, when we're out of balance with that, you know, then we kind of get sucked in, drained. When we're in this repetitive motion injury of worry, about what's happening, this chronic fatigue that's in our heart and minds that cripples us. You know, we need some compassion towards ourselves when that happens, but we also need the other wing of wisdom. We need to bring a little wisdom in there to, to help balance, bring a sense of equanimity to play. And we all might want to check that out in ourselves. Most of the social movements, past and present, have been this desire to seek social balance, social equanimity. It's been an attempt to bring a sense of balance and justice and fairness in the social realm. And there's just so many ways where, where that balance is needed. But it needs to be wise balance. Um, our effort should be, uh, we want to practice so that we are in balance because our actions are always planting seeds. They're going to bloom now or they're going to bloom at some time in the future. And when we wake up to the responsibility we have from our actions, when we know we're interdependent, when we know we're planting seeds, then it really um, invites us to be more responsible around our actions and our intentions. Because it's, uh, it's a big field. Patrice Coyer, co-founder of Black Lives Matters, she wrote, this movement is not just about me. It also brings my ancestors and all people passionate about justice into the movement. This is healing work. So she's including a sense of social responsibility. Everybody's kind of in the mix. So what this means to us is perhaps all of these ways we can cultivate uh, equanimity and the Brahma Vihara practices in general, is that we practice standing in the middle of all things. We practice standing in the middle of it with evenness of mind, peaceful, easeful, poised, that we bring our f- the full of our lives into the heart of our practice. That when we leave here tomorrow, we don't leave the practice t- 
to go into our lives. We take the practice and into the center of our lives. Life is practice. We see with patience. And we use our relationships and what disturbs us as invitations to wake up and um, learn how, how, to, how to show up and be in relationship with this world. So let's just sit with this for a little while together. I shall not, I shall not be moved. I shall not, I shall not be moved just like a tree planted by the water. I shall not be moved. Thank you for your attention. And please stay in your practice. We just have a few more hours to really be close in and caring. Really um, take it to heart. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.